You're listening to Love Your City. It's a Movement Australia podcast. We believe that communities can be transformed as a unified church in every city or town lives and proclaims the gospel into every sphere of society. We'll tell stories from where this is already happening. We'll dig into the Bible to better understand God's heart for cities and towns. And we'll discuss practical strategies. Because no matter where you live, a gospel movement can happen. Movement Day is all about the flourishing of our cities. In order for this to happen, it is very important that we engage with City Council, whether it's releasing our people to run for local council or getting behind the ones who are in council and supporting them and working close with them. Today, we have a very special guest all the way from Bristol, the UK, the Mayor of Bristol, in fact, Marvin Rees. Good afternoon. Well, it's afternoon for us. <laughs> morning for yeah, you. Yeah, it's morning for me. So. Morning for you. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Marvin. Before I ask you some more questions, I just want to read a little bit of your bio, just so it gives people a bit of a context of um, who you are and what you've done in the last few years. But you were elected in May 2016. Bristol became the first major European city to have elected a mayor of black African heritage. Marvin was born and brought up in Bristol by his mother, he has declared Bristol a city of hope built on ambition, inclusion and social justice. During his first term in office, he has overseen the building of over 8,000 homes, announced the development of mass transit system and provided quality work experience for over 3,500 children who wouldn't readily have access. So well done, Marvin. And I know it's not just you, but a whole team of people that work with you as yeah. well. Um, and that's some of the stuff that we want to discuss today in our interview. But just briefly tell us, because most of us Aussies haven't been to Bristol. Tell us what it was like growing up in Bristol for you as a young boy. So Bristol, it's, it's a city. It's about 100, 120 miles uh, west of London. Um, it's a big city, it was a major port back in the day, so it's one of the wealthiest cities in the UK, along with Liverpool, Manchester, London. So it's one of the 10 core cities, the 10 biggest cities outside London. Um, we actually do have quite a few Australians in Bristol. It's a bit of a destination uh, for Australian uh, young people coming to the UK. Um, but for me growing up, it was quite tough. Yeah, my mum uh, had me in 1972, ages me, uh, but to be honest, she was a white woman, unmarried, no money, with a brown baby on the way. 1972, it wasn't the done thing. Um, and so she came under a lot of pressure around what to do with me. Um, but, you know, my mum you know, has, has an internal strength, and so she, you know, brought me up. Um, but we didn't have much money, so that, that made it tough. And, and Bristol was quite a racially fractured city as well. Coming off the Windrush arrival, there was a lot of racism in the UK. Um, and people coming from you know, the West Indies and South Asia to build um, build the UK after the Blitz weren't given as much of a welcome as I think they were led to believe. So it was it was tough for me growing up. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't unusual to be chased or racially abused or feel physically threatened on the streets of the city. But having said that, it was also the city that gave me a start. You know, and it gave me a platform to become mayor today. So as with most places, it's full of contradiction. Yeah, that's it. So growing up uh, in Bristol, did you ever believe that one day you would be the mayor? Uh, no, well, we didn't have them. We only got elected mayors um, in 2012. But I, but I always wanted to do something, you know. I grew up 
believing there was more to life than what I could see around me. I believe I believed that I had purpose, um, and I and I always believed it had something to do with uh, poverty and inequality and fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always thought I would do something. I thought there was something for me to do, mm-hmm. um, but I couldn't have imagined it was going to be mayor. No, I guess not. Um, you're a man of faith. Did you feel when you um, decided to run for mayor, did you feel a particular call or God saying this is something that you really needed to do or what was the process around that? Well, I, 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 you know, I did in the end. I have to be careful with that because I, I've, you know, I'm pretty open. I'm very I'm open about my faith. It is, you know, I don't wear it on my T-shirt everywhere I go. It's just what I am. It's just who I am. Um, but some people try to make hay out of it, you know, like I'm trying to introduce a theocracy and all that type of stuff. Um, but no, I did. Um, I, but just like when I went to university, I felt, okay, this is my development. Um, I had a great opportunity to go to Yale a few years ago. I felt that was, was my development. And to me, this is another pathway to express my desire to try to make the world more fair, more just, to take care of the planet in the way it was supposed to. Um, so to that extent, yeah, I, you know, I do. Um, the real, the, I suppose the real triggers for my decision were, were two key people, Professor David Berger, who was at Yale, who said to me, I think you should do executive politics more than legislative politics. He said, I think you'd enjoy it more. And a friend here in Bristol, Councillor Margaret Hickman, who said to me when the referendum was won and we said we'd go for mayor, she said, oh, you should go for that. And I say to young people today, you've always got to have good friends around you because they'll spot things that you perhaps didn't spot for yourself opportunity they'll see things in you that you don't see in yourself um so yeah i went over and yeah i believe this is the place i'm supposed to be uh, yeah absolutely now uh there's quite a good unity among the churches there's a great prayer network in bristol what role did they play in supporting you in running for mayor um back those years so i ran twice in 2012 and then i lost that one in 20 in 2016 I think the, the church's relationship with electoral politics is an interesting one. I think the churches are very nervous about it, and, and they'd like to be—they like to be seen as clean. Um, and there's almost a virtue in declaring non-engagement in in uh, political in electoral politics, party politics. So I see the dangers um, in getting mired in it, but I also see the dangers in not getting involved. Um, it was Arnie Graf, who's a community organizer out of the United States said to me when he said, uh, you know, power abhors a vacuum, right? I think it's a science law too. If you leave a vacuum, something will fill it. And it's no point the church turning up in six, seven years saying, why are all these bad things happening um, when you could have actually been involved in helping get the right policy in the first instance? You know, and I, I've, I've just, my play with the church is, you know, you don't come after the, get after the fact and ask politicians why why they didn't do anything, or even stand in front of God. I think God will say, well, I gave you a huge organization, right? lots of members, I gave you resources, intelligence, and a functioning democracy. You chose not to line all those things up to influence the rules in which people have to live, the policies in which they live. So why pray for miracles when you have this massive opportunity in front of you to shape policy? Absolutely. So currently now, I know um, Andy, one of the Christian leaders in your city, works closely. How are you? How are you working? What is your relationship with the church now after four years? Um, how do you work to see your city flourish? Well, the ch- I, so there's a couple, few levels on which it's happening. I, I think after I lost the first election, I think there was a conversation. We were we were able to have a bit of more conversation with the church. 
because I never wanted to say vote for me because I'm a Christian. That's cheap. You can't just look at what, you know, you can't just wave a Bible around in front of a church and win the glory of the church. Or it shouldn't work like that. You know, it has worked like that, but it shouldn't work like that. Um, it has to be about policy and what you stand for and your values and your track record. Um, so the church has been a bit more uh, forthright. And, um, but with someone like Andy, we developed a culture in a city called make us a big offer and then make a big ask. So rather than just going to politicians and saying what you can do about this, what you can do about that, like people used to do to Moses, right? <laughs> you've, got, you've got to come with an idea. I say to people, come and tell me what you want to get done in the city. What's your big vision for Bristol? And then tell me what you need from the city that will enable you to deliver that. That's a much more respectful relationship than what I'm going to do is invest in your potential, right? And by investing in your potential, we will unlock something for the city. Andy comes like that. Andy comes with a vision um, and he says, I want to end child hunger in Bristol. Okay, what do you need from us to do that, Andy? Well, I need access to primary schools. I need breakfast clubs. I want you to help me convene a meeting with the member of parliament, the cabinet lead, the council. I want access to your adult social care and school services. Right, we'll do it. Right, if you say that access to all that can help you and your team of you know, faith and non-faith factors end child poverty in the city, um, Great, let's do it and let's see where, we, see where we get to. So that's been the nature of the relationship. And um, I, I'd say it's, it's taken the church five steps forward in the, the maturity of its, of its presence uh, within the city. Um, if I just add one more, my chief of staff, um, there was a bit of nervousness in my office among some of the younger staffers um, saying that we're getting a lot coming in on social media and letters about the church and you know, your role with the faith group. And, and my chief of staff put it brilliantly. He said, the church is turning up with ideas, solutions, resources, and energy. What are we going to do? Turn them away? You know, we've got 25% of our kids in the city in poverty. We're going to turn that away? Of course we're not. If someone else wants to turn up with that, then we'll listen to them, but no one else is. So the church has turned up as a solution to the city's challenges now. Food, housing, social inclusion, education, inequality, women in the sex industry, you know, it's so it's, it's been it's been fantastic, and Andy's really been at the forefront of that. He is, and I know behind him he's he's leading a united group of churches. So it's not just one church, one denomination. Uh, there's prayer in there, and and that's vital. Is to come with a vision and then follow up, <laughs> is absolutely vital. Currently, what do you see are, are the bigger challenges in Bristol? I know you've been um, affected by uh, the issues of racism as well, and we've seen that on the news lately. How are you handling that? I'm fine with it. Um, I think I, you know, so racism is in many operates in different ways. You get the overt stuff, um, you know, and to be honest, I kind of dealt with that as a kid. I, I, it's not nice to be called names and all that type of stuff, and I feel threatened you, but I don't think I'm an example of white supremacy. I'm not the person to pick up if you want to try to evidence white supremacy. You know, played a good bit of rugby league. <laughs> Union back in the day, got a couple of masters, mayor of Bristol, go around the world, you know, so I'm pretty comfortable with that. Um, I'm more worried about other people getting it who don't have the security of those achievements. Um, but then I'm concerned about the, um, I'm more concerned about the invisible and personal racism. So if racism was all about evil individuals orchestrating inequality, it'd be really easy to deal with. You just find them and sack them. But that's not the way it works. Right. We, have a, we have a race pay gap in the cities, pound for pound, hour for hour. Uh, people with brown skin, black skin are paid less than their white counterparts. 
right? You can't find an individual doing that. It's the way the system works. That's why we call it systemic racism. But you can see the same in gender, right? We've got a gender pay gap in the city. Women, skill for skill, hour for hour paid less. You will not find an individual or a collection of policy generating that inequality. It's just the way it happens. And when I say just the way, I don't trivialize it. This is not about trivializing it. We've got to be quite sophisticated in our understanding of what I am. And tackling racism is not just about getting people praying together, singing together, sitting around a campfire, eating each other's food and singing kumbaya. Tackling racism is getting to a point where my brown children are not born destined to die earlier, get a poor educational outcome, end up in mental health institutions or, or criminal justice system more than white children. When we have delivered that kind of world, then our relationship is genuinely, uh, then we have the grounds for genuine reconciliation. Outside of that, reconciliation can be, can be pursued and we can make good friendships. I mean, I've clearly got a mixed race. My, I've got white friends as it were. It doesn't undermine, but it's a, it's a factor um, to, to our relationship. Um, and I'd like to see the church on the forefront of that, bringing that level of sophistication to, to tackling racism. So practically, what would that look like, the church on the forefront? It means, well, in many ways, it means getting involved in policy. So, uh, you know, driving the development of a delivery of affordable housing in genuinely mixed communities of mixed tenures, not allowing ghettos. So what are the policies that have generated ghettos uh, or, or separation that mean that we've had different access to, to quality housing? Are children from different backgrounds getting a radically different experience of education uh, in, in, in this country, in, in your country? Are different, we had 56% of our children in Bristol not getting access to work experience. So you can, get which, you can guess which 56% of those were. They were going to be the poorest. That, that cuts across race, it cuts across class. The white working class kids are not getting access to work experience in the professions, in legal profession. So we have one of the most socially immobile countries in the OECD in the UK. That your, parent, your parents' background is the single most effective indicator of where you end up in life. That is justice, injustice writ large, right? Um, so getting involved in those policies that shape life trajectory, that's, that's where the, the church needs to be. We must pray together, and I know prayer matters and all that, but prayer without deeds is dead and all that, right? So it's, it's what are those factors that, that stymie life chances of people? When we deal with those, we'll have the platform for really tackling racism, sexism, uh, class immobility and injustice and all the rest of it. Hmm. So do you think this is possible in your lifetime? No, I don't know. I'm hopeful, I'm, I, but I'm not an optimist. Uh, I think there's a significant difference. Um, I think we just fight on in the face of it. And that's our responsibility. You know, we're not called, you know, what's the call? Is it, you know, and, and sometimes victory doesn't look like victory. I mean, ultimately, look at the story of Jesus, right? It didn't look like a victory in and of the moment, but it was a victory. And we leave, we leave the results to God. Our job is to do what we can. I'm a fallen human being working with an imperfect political party in a broken political system. I just got to do my best, leave the rest to God. Yep. What part, what role does your faith play from day to day in your role uh, as a mayor? Well, that's a difficult question because I couldn't tell you what it doesn't do. I mean, it's just who I am, just like being male, being mixed race, black, coming from a poor, but it just, it's just stitched into me. Um, and it is what it is, you know, I, it just flows, it just, it's just in me. So it's very difficult for me to define it, like asking a fish to define water, I suppose. Um, 
and, and I and I think about it all the time, both in terms of what I do, but it is who I am. And the reason I believe I didn't end up living out the consequences of the circumstances of my birth. Um, I think it's the, it was the thing that gave me a sense of purpose and helped me to find self-esteem when I had no self-esteem as a child. So yeah, it's huge. Lastly, as we finish up, just um, hopefully uh, hundreds of leaders across Australia um, will be listening to this, leaders who want to impact their city, who maybe haven't uh, engaged politically or with their mayor. What uh, advice or encouragement would you like to leave with them? Church leaders? Yeah. Ah, okay. So basically the world hasn't got time for people to leave their talents buried in the ground, right? Um, like I said, that one day we'll have to account for everything we had at our disposal in front of God, not just for our own personal morality, but for the impact we had on the world. And, you know, it's, I used to work for Tony Campolo uh, uh, years ago, and he, he told us there's a, talk, there's a story, legendary, that goes around about Tony of a church praying for money to fix its roof. And he got the church to look at their money, and they had all the money they needed. He said, why are you praying for a miracle? you've got all the money here. He said, that's rude, essentially. And, uh, you know, and that's our point. You know, we can look around the world. It seems unfair. Um, but, you know, we've got a phenomenal amount of resource and influence. And if we put it um, to the service of the common good, we, um, we can make a, a massive difference. I also think the church has a very meaningful uh, message and insight to share on what it takes to build human relationships. So our salvation, right? The graciousness given to us is free, but it's not cheap. And too often in wider society, we go for quick, cheap relationships, quick, cheap get-togethers under weak banners of identity, be it local or national or racial, whatever. Um, but people don't know how to get there. And, and the church should understand reconciliation. And it should be able to help the politics understand what it means to build a reconciled society in the face of an existing broken society. I'd love, I'd love to see the church leading on that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got a big day ahead. We appreciate it greatly. And uh, may God continue to bless you and use you and um, bless Bristol. Thank you, Marvin. Thank you. 